Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. There are scholar activists who are real change agents in and out of the classroom, and today we are eager to learn from one of them. Ellen Spears has been involved in movement building for environmental and climate justice through her whole career. She is currently a professor in the New College and Department of American Studies at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Ellen has done her research on the sites of toxic landscapes, engaging directly with local activists, environmental leaders. She's the author of several books, the award-winning Baptized in PCBs, Race, Religion, Pollution and Justice in an All-American Town, published by UNC Press in 2014, that is on the Monsanto dumping in Anniston, Alabama, known as Toxic Town, USA and the comprehensive Rethinking the American Environmental Movement post-1945, published by Routledge in 2019, and the oral history of the Newtown Florist Club in Gainesville, Georgia, The Newtown Story, One Community's Fight for Environmental Justice, published by the Center for Democratic Renewal in 1998. Ellen is also an editorial board member of the journals Environmental History and Southern Spaces. Ellen's intersectional approach to environmental racism gives a deeper understanding of, quote, dumping in Dixie, which is Robert Bullard's term, and sets it in a global context. But closer to home, she was part of the task force on the history of race, slavery, and civil rights at the University of Alabama, and in 2013, this group worked successfully for the exoneration of the Scottsboro defendants, nine African-American males ages 13 to 20, accused of sexually assaulting a white woman in 1931. Her classes range from comparative ecologies to environmental ethics and policy to environment and film. Welcome Ellen Spears to Nothing Never Happens. Ellen, thank you so much for being here. Um, we want to just get started by asking um, what are some of the sparks that led you to become an environmental historian and an environmental activist. And I think as you answer, you could, those, those, the, the sparks might be separate or they might be sparks that light something on fire at the same time or the candle might spread. I'm running with this metaphor and now I will pass it to you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to take part in this. And, um, I, you know, I worked in several social justice nonprofits in Atlanta uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I think the spark for this recent work um, is an extraordinary group of women in Gainesville, Georgia, uh, the Newtown Florist Club. And they're unlike any garden club you would have ever run into. And they worked on um, African-American women, worked on voting rights, and then I registering people to vote in the 1960s. They had been together for several decades. Um, and in the late uh, 1980s, uh, around 1989 or so, um, is part of their work, uh, which was caring for people who were sick, going to visit people at their homes, taking food, standing up, with the flowers, at, uh, bringing the flowers for funerals, they, they began to notice that a lot of people 
were sick with various ailments, respiratory ailments and cancer. Um, and they realized that they might quite likely be uh, victims of environmental injustice. Um, but they were never victims. They were always activists and uh, took on this new challenge, um, getting, the, uh, getting state officials involved, uh, getting the EPA involved, getting various others involved. And um, I had written a little article for our Southern Regional Council quarterly Southern Changes about the big New Orleans gathering at Xavier University around environmental justice in 1992. Um, and through that, I met the club and worked with them uh, for a few years um, on um, a book um, uh, on, on the history of their work, uh, The New Town Story, uh, One Community's Fight for Environmental Justice. And so I did oral histories and uh, they read the manuscript and made changes, and it was a, a collaborative oral history project. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, from Newtown, you went on to do other activist work, um, especially with uh, the Stop the Poison movement in Anniston, Alabama, uh, with the Monsanto dumping of PCBs, and that was your 2014 book. Uh, baptized by PCBs, uh, and I knew several uh, people in that movement, um, and it made a, a real difference. And but then, you know, Aniston is, is was and is known as Toxic City, USA. So, would you tell us um, from Newtown how you got to Aniston uh, and got involved in that movement? Well, um, I. Uh... Around 1998, I um, decided that after many years, I wanted to go back to school. And so I uh, worked on a PhD at Emory University. And there I met um, people who were working on public health issues with the folks in Anniston. And through um, Dr. Howard Frumkin, who was at the School of Public Health, I met um, key activists in the Anniston fight. Um, people like uh, Shirley, at that time Shirley and David Baker, um, and Cassandra Roberts, and Opal Scruggs, uh, a whole group of people who in various ways were working uh, through local groups. Um, David and Shirley were active in Community Against Pollution, one of the major local groups, and the other was actually uh, formed uh, earlier was the uh, Cassandra Roberts and Kay Beard and others were in the uh, Cobtown, Sweet Valley Cobtown Environmental Justice Task Force. Uh, and they were really the, um, the people who made uh, that issue come to light. Um, and um, there were several lawsuits. Um, eventually, uh, people won a major global settlement in 2003, uh, $600 million uh, to the residents who had been harmed. Um, the, the contamination there was PCBs. Uh, Mon the Monsanto Chemical Company had, since the 1930s, operated a plant there uh, making polychlorinated biphenyls. Uh, which they knew uh, by 1937 were very toxic to the human body and to animals around the plant. Um, but it didn't really come to light publicly until the 1960s that 
PCBs were contaminated and somehow Monsanto kept it quiet. It wasn't really until the 1990s that local people realized how extensive the problem, the contamination was there and, um, and how, how long it had, had been going on, the health consequences um, to, to residents and people who'd worked at the plant. Tell us a little bit how you went kind of about engaging um, in that research project. So that I know you did oral histories, you got to know people, um, and I can imagine that that might have been a place where some of the your teaching, your scholarship, your activism were coming together. Yes, I think that's a good way to characterize it. Um, I did about a, a little over 100 oral history interviews. Uh, with local people. And, you know, I sensed ahead of time, I wondered, would there be some reluctance, you know, to talk to some an outsider? Um, but uh, people were anxious to tell the story. It was just like Newtown. If I can, by telling the story, help one other community avoid such a problem, then I want to tell about it. And, um, and so uh, local, I interviewed people on all sides of the uh, equation, uh, people who were living in the neighborhood. Um, there were actually two chemical dramas unfolding in Anniston at that time. One was the PCB contamination and its impact on people's health. Um, the other was uh, people found out in the early, late 80s, early 90s, that not only had the U.S. Army been storing at the Anniston Army Depot, one of two military installations locally. They'd been storing um, U.S. WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, um, nerve gas, VX, um, sarin, mustard gas, uh, things that were designed to maim and harm people for war. They had been storing um, big, uh, large quantities um, at the Anderson Army Depot since the 1960s. And people found out not only that they were there, which had been largely a secret, but also that the Army planned to incinerate them on the site. And so um, both of those um, stories were colliding at the same time. And, um, and so I talked with people too who were involved in that. I talked with people who represented the army. I talked with people who represented Monsanto and Solutia, the plant uh, managers at the time um, and put together um, the, a history uh, um, of an understanding of, of what had gone on. And that became the book. Um, Baptized in PCBs, Race, Pollution, and Justice in an All-American Town, um, which came out, as you said, in 2014. Yeah, one of the things that you just said is your intersectional approach to environmentalism. And um, at, this is getting back to, to Lucia's first question about the sparks. Um, how did you begin to make those connections intersectionally, being race, gender, um, class? Uh, military industrial complex. Um, you're, you're not only on the ground with PCBs, but in the air with nuclear weapons and the um, uh, storing of, of nuclear waste. So could you, how did you connect all that? Well, um, you know, I had been involved with, uh, in my 
work professionally with a number of organizations that have been working on inequality, specifically racial inequality. Uh, but I'd also been active um, in the women's policy group on gender issues. And uh, this was a place where all of those stories came together in one locale. Um, there are particular harms that come to women and children from PCB exposure. And so that was an important thing to bring out. People talk to me about that. Um, and the very clear uh, racial divide in Anniston between East and West Anniston. West Anniston was the area impacted by the plant. Um, and it was predominantly African-American um, in that neighborhood. That's who, um, you know, the studies that were done later, uh, one of the things people won out of that fight was a, a grant of $3.2 million from the um, federal agency that studies those things, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. Uh, and unfortunately, that study offered grim confirmation of environmental injustice because uh, African-Americans were very clearly um, um, had uh, greater quantities of the toxic substances in their um, test samples that were taken for the, for the lawsuits. Um, so it was a, a um, the story itself um, was brought all those um, elements together. They, they, they couldn't be separated. Um, the kind of uh, triple oppression that African-American women face, for example, uh, was, was very clear. Even within the movement, uh, there were challenges um, along those lines with uh, women activists not always being given their due or, or respected. And so all of those tensions were, were part of the story. How do you um, talk to your students about the kinds of oral history methods that you use? So like you're getting stories from people and I can imagine that your student that you know you're teaching you're teaching some of these methods in your classes. I can also imagine that some of your students um, overlap with the communities that that you study. Um, talk to us about kind of what that relationship is like and um, the ways that you bring students with you into the work of oral history and also um, let their experiences come into um, kind of come into their their own conceptions of the methods and the projects and the sort of history um, that they're that they're writing. Yes, most most of the um, courses I teach are upper level writing intensive se seminars. Um, I teach in, at the University of Alabama in a unique program. It's an innovative um, interdisciplinary program called New College. It's actually no, no longer new and not a college. Uh, it was founded in the era of educational reform uh, in 1971. Uh, so it's been around for a number of decades uh, and it functions more like a department in the university. But um, students come to New College who want to do, want to design their own major. And so um, they are already disposed to be curious and creative and inventive. Um, and I, but I teach students from all across the university who take these writing intensive courses. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, there are lots of ways to approach pedagogy. One is 
Uh, learning is all about the questions that you ask. Um, it's whether what questions you're asking of material that you encounter in the archives, um, or if you encounter it in, um, in visiting and working closely with people in communities firsthand. And, and that's been some of the most rewarding work that I've been able to do um, as a professor um, is to uh, bring together people um, in uh, the academy with people who are dealing with um, issues and concerns in the, in the real world, in the world. <laughs> Both are the real world, but, um, but making those connections. I can say all I want in the classroom about inequality and what's happening, but when, uh, you know, how these uh, problems interrelate, uh, you know, the various theoretical work that we talk about, the importance of intersectionality and those concepts, people, Kimberly Crenshaw and others have, uh, you know, developed over the years to help us understand how the world works. Um, but it's actually going someplace and seeing this in practice that is what's going to stick with people. Uh, so I've had the fortune, good fortune to be able with support from the university to be able to take students to Anniston. Uh, we went for the dedication of the Freedom Riders um, Park, uh, the, the initial uh, groundbreaking there ceremony. Um, and that's, of course, another important uh, part of the Anniston story, which is um, then um, Mother's Day in the early 60s, uh, one of the Freedom Rides, the um, folks who set out from Washington, D.C. to um, demonstrate that the um, court decisions of desegregating public accommodations uh, in transportation uh, should be uh, honored, uh, should be implemented. Uh, the, the Freedom Riders uh, coming through Anniston um, were uh, brutally attacked. One of the worst, one of the more violent attacks, their bus was firebombed right near the Monsanto plant, actually just west of the Monsanto plant uh, in Anniston uh, in 1961. And this event um, a few years ago was uh, the groundbreaking for the Freedom Riders Park that is near the site where that happened. Um, we have other uh, environmental issues in Alabama where students have um, visited. Uh, we've gone to Perry County where the coal ash from the big coal ash disaster in eastern Tennessee uh, has, was, was trucked train by train, actually traveled by train um, from a majority white area in east Tennessee to majority black uh, county. Uh, Perry County, um, Uniontown, Alabama. And so, you know, we went and saw the mountain of hazardous waste that's been uh, dumped right alongside the road where people live. Uh, again, it's uh, African-American population that is affected. And so there's no substitute for going to places and seeing what's happening. Can you... Oh Oh, go ahead, Lucy. I was just going to follow up and ask if you had an example of a kind of like you could if you walked us through a memorable day on one of those visits and or I guess this is a choose your own adventure. Um, what's an example of an assignment um, that you would that you would present to students um, 
on or after one of those, one of those trips? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so uh, the taking the first part, um, the, the memorable day I would pull from another project altogether that um, got us involved with uh, the Scottsboro Boys Museum and Cultural Center in Jackson County, North Alabama, um, up 40 miles from Chattanooga. Um, and the, we had had a really 10-year project um, working closely with the museum. Um, and it's found amazing founding uh, director, uh, Sheila Washington. And um, so, for example, uh, w- when, when we first got to uh, work together, we were gonna, going to do a public history project. Um, and the students who came primarily, not exclusively, but primarily from uh, William, Professor William Bomar's Museum Studies classes, were doing a public history project. Um, and our goal then was to make a, a brochure uh, that showed the route of the train um, from which the uh, nine young African-American men who were arrested and false, falsely accused of rape and arrested in, um, the ni- in 1931. Um, and we were telling that story through a public history brochure that the museum could use to share with people who, who came to visit. And we're doing some local research for them and helping them set up their website. And that was, a, that was kind of a, um, a focused project. And so we would go up and um, visit the museum, which was um, a church that was probably, uh, that was built in the 1870s, um, probably by, uh, through the labor of formerly enslaved persons um, that had become the museum. And uh, we would meet with uh, Ms. Washington and other members of the board and show them, here's what we've worked on so far. What do you think? And get a critique and uh, go back. And, um, you know, we would hear, uh, we went to uh, programs there where you could hear the train whistle still in the background going by when the program would unfold kind of this echo of the past uh, because the museum is right there just two blocks from the from the train tracks but um so so in that case the assignment was um put together the materials for the brochure um other students in a different uh, semester of that class worked on a grant proposal, for example, uh, putting together the language that the museum might use to submit a grant proposal. Um, And so those were some very targeted um, projects that had, uh, and, you know, had a chance for having a real impact um, on their work. Well, are, are there models out there for this kind of pedagogy that you've drawn from? Well, I think I've been most influenced um, by the people who, and there are a number of different folks um, who have focused on critical pedagogy of place. Um, one of the people who does this is somebody we've both worked with, and that's um, Bob, Reverend Barbara Patterson, Bobby Patterson, who was for a long time um, in the 
Graduate Division of Religion at Emory. Uh, and she's certainly one of the proponents of that work. Um, and, um, and, and the, the theme of that work is helping people to uh, learn through understanding uh, local places and and how um, and this this draws on work of other you know scholars uh, theoretical work about how uh, people like Doreen Massey uh, the British historian uh, I mean uh, cultural studies scholar uh, David Harvey certainly in U.S. Uh, cultural studies person um, thinking about how is it that local places are the sites at which global processes take place. Um, and so you could see it in the um, Aniston context. Here's this global agrochemical giant, uh, but its impact is um, terribly local, you know, its, its impact has a, has a terrible local consequences for people. Uh, and you can see that in Scottsboro, where uh, Jim Crow at a peak, uh, it's actually shifting ever so slightly at that stage in the 1930s because of the work activists are doing. Um, the, um, the, the arrests and convictions had a devastating impact on those nine young men and their families that lasted for a generation or more. Um, but that was, um, you know, I just read recently, there were a million young men in America riding the rails looking for work. Uh, that was part of the, um, the, the global process of the depression that was taking place that was part of the um, context and, and the Jim Crow South. Um, and then it, it took, devastating form and in that local local place. Well, could you tell the rest of the story of, of the work that happened with the Scottsboro project? Yes. yes, so after we finished the public history project, which it had its challenges, but relatively easy, um, she, she, Sheila Washington said to me, well, I have another project for you. Um, I wanna get, the Scottsboro defendants exonerated uh, and have pardons for the men who still had standing convictions. And I was like, well, this is the important thing about community-based partnerships, which is you're um, driven by the needs and goals of the community. Um, but I and almost everyone I talked to around the state as I tried to get other scholars to sign on to a letter to the governor, and that was our initial step to call on the governor to issue pardons. Um, everyone was rather skeptical about whether this could happen. Um, and um, and Ms. Sheila, Ms. Washington was uh, determined and made it happen. Uh, the governor said, no, no, this is outside my authority. This is in the Pardons and Paroles Board uh, authority. And um, so then we went to, had a meeting in Montgomery with the Pardons and Paroles Board. Uh, Tom Reedy, who was a PhD student at uh, Alabama at that time. And we, one of the good things about this project is we were able to involve students at all levels, undergraduate, 
master's students and PhD students. And Tom was a PhD student and he and Sheila and I went to Montgomery and met with the Pardons and Paroles Board. And uh, they had together had uh, several communications with them. And the Pardons and Paroles Board said, these are posthumous pardons and our authority doesn't give us the right to issue posthumous pardons. You have to go to the legislature. And, you know, everybody we were talking to was, well, you know, that that's a big challenge. And uh, but Sheila put together a coalition of North Alabama legislators, uh, whites and African-Americans, uh, Republicans and Democrats. And together um, we we my my colleague, John Miller, is the person who deserves the kudos for this. Um, and he, um, he's the uh, assistant director in New College um, and a lawyer and a poet and a, just a uh, uh, wonderful colleague in this project. And together we help to suggest language that they might wanna use. And um, there were two bills that were approved unanimously in the Alabama legislature, one uh, exonerating all nine defendants uh, and the other creating an avenue for the Pardons and Paroles Board to issue a posthumous pardon. And that happened in 2013, um, you know, almost a little more than uh, 90 years uh, 80 years after the fact. Um, and, um, and then John Miller wrote an extraordinary, he's commended by the chair of the Pardons and Paroles Board as the best petition they had ever received, um, uh, winning the, the pardons for the, the three remaining, the defendants who had still had standing convictions. Um, and so, you know, we've talked about it. I've talked about it. My, my students, made history in two ways. They, they documented history for the brochure and the website, and, uh, but they also helped to make history, that is to change the outcome. Um, of course, it doesn't bring a full measure of justice to uh, those men and their families, um, but it was um, a recognition, um, a very important recognition um by the by the state authorities i think that might be a good segue to talk about um the sort of the current political climate which in so many ways is um replicating and morphing um the white supremacy um that surrounded the Scottsboro case and the fight in its aftermath um, now in anti-CRT laws, um, in attacks on reproductive freedoms, in um, serious um, penalties being meted out to a number of um, of teacher to teachers um, who teach black history, who teach the history of um, racism in the United States. I'm curious about what that landscape looks like for you um, in Alabama um, and how, how you have navigated it. Yeah, yeah well, you're absolutely right. Uh, we're seeing the biggest challenge to academic freedom um, that, uh, I, I think in, in decades, um, really, uh, that um, 
uh, is part of the active program of the rising right wing. That is, uh, if if making sure that we obscure the truth about all of these issues, uh, about women's right to choose, about um, the uh, education about racism and white supremacy and the, the colonial settler history of the United States uh, would like to kind of erase people's understanding of that. Um, and, um, you know, this nationally coordinated assault on, um, on essentially um, what, 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 they, what has been termed divisive subjects of race and gender and gender identity, um, sexuality. Um, it's a manufactured uproar over critical race theory. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a coordinated assault on the right to read. Um, the, the level of book banning, I don't think that we have seen this level of book banning campaigns since the 1920s. Um, and so um, a lot of that has been targeted at the K through 12 level. So we haven't seen as much impact of it uh, in the college level at the university level, uh, but it's, it's not, and nobody expects that that, that won't happen. Um, and certainly people in particular places have indeed been uh, challenged, reprimanded, not promoted, just called in for a discussion um, in the context of their um, outspoken work. And, um, and so while personally uh, it hasn't um, changed how I teach or what I feel um, was is well within my academic um, freedom to discuss with students. Students are anxious to discuss these issues. Um, they brought up well, the last fall in one class. Uh, students brought up critical race theory. What is it? How do we understand it? What? What? Why does? Why is all this uproar happening? Um, and we had a really lively discussion that did what I love most in the classroom when students are talking with each other about what they think and the teacher is just kind of there um, helping to provide sources and background and history. Um, it's, you know, uh, that's what's on students' minds. They see it. They watched George Floyd, the nine minutes. Uh, and so that's, it's, it's there for everyone to see, and we need to be able to talk about it in order to be able to figure out um, how these kinds of assaults um, never happen again. Yeah, what are you seeing at the University of Alabama in particular? You know, you're at a, in a small segment of that larger neoliberal institution, um, you know, with the corporate interest and well, the football and um, and and everything. I mean, it's such a big institution. How do you navigate that? Uh, as well, yes, so I've said I have not personally had any um, limitations placed on what I teach. However, there have been major issues at the University of Alabama. We do still get racial slurs sprawled on the sidewalk. 
epithets yelled at students. Um, with very uh, controversial departure of a popular dean a couple of years ago. Um, and so uh, popular African-American dean a couple of years ago, um, quite possibly related to things he had said and written um, about his views on racial inequality. And um, so they, these are present issues uh, on the campus. Um, and one of the things that's been formed in 2019, so this is well after the uh, Scottsboro work, but um, in 2019, um, the um, Associate Provost for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, amazing woman, uh, Dr. Christine Taylor, um, who is uh, just leading in an extraordinary way on the campus, um, uh, called together a number of faculty to put together a task force on uh, following through on a, um, this, a um, resolution by the faculty senate uh, that we form a commission on race, slavery, and civil rights at the University of Alabama. And so um, a, lot, a lot of that work has been focused more recently in a a team led by uh, Professor Jenny Shaw in history on looking at the um, history of slavery at the University of Alabama. And we're part of a much larger consortium around the country. Uh, universities studying slavery um, prompted um, by work at other universities uh, that is you know, looking at uh, the the deep implications of academic implication of academic institutions uh, in the perpetuation of, of slave slavery and its associated institutions and and so uh, that group her team uh, has um, looked into in more depth um, the number of faculty who owned slaves, the administrators who were involved in slavery, the slaves who worked on the campus. Uh, and they've put together an extraordinary website and um, set of documents that will um, probably this fall uh, be um, made available, uh, probably launched this fall. I guess I um just kind of continuing down this track. I'm wondering if you have I, I think what was it by way of kind of introduction. So I teach in the Northeast at a private school that tends to be pretty progressive, um, at least um and and protecting of of faculty, but I have a family that um is public school works at public schools in um in East Tennessee right here at the coal ash, um, white neighborhood where it got shipped out of that you were talking about before. Um, I, one of my experiences in sort of navigating the New York scene and then talking to um, my family and colleagues and friends in the South, and I'm sure Tina could weigh in on this too, is that it can be really hard to imagine if, uh, if you're not in the context, what the terrain is like and sort of what's going on at school board meetings, what is, what, what's happening in the state legislature um, and what kind of everyday people who are voting um, who have a stake in education can do to be in solidarity with um, 
teaching and learning um, that is historically um, critical and accurate. Um, I'm curious about sort of how, if th this is sort of like a circle back to one of the original questions about activism and scholarship and teaching coming together for you, what ways have you seen sort of community mobilization around issues of, of education um, beyond, beyond the university and kind of into the, in, in sort of into the state more widely? Well, I think a number of people, uh, the University of Alabama, you know, as part of the um, accreditation process, one of the things that universities are doing is having a big thematic thrust. Um, Emory's is the nature of evidence. Uh, Alabama's is learning in action. And um, what I think is really excellent about that theme is it um, gives support to the kind of work that faculty and a number of different aspects of the university are doing uh, to engage students in different parts of the state. And so there are a number of people working in the Black Belt of Alabama. Uh, the Honors College has an extraordinary program where they take uh, some incoming freshmen to spend some time um, in um, the uh, Black Belt and learning, experiencing, living there for a little while and learning something about the conditions. Uh, we have people from the College of Community Health Sciences, um, like Dr. Pamela Foster, who have been doing health work, um, HIV AIDS work, and other uh, work to expand and improve public health opportunities in uh, the Black Belt. A new college initiated several years ago now, I guess this is about 10 years, uh, has been doing a project in Walker County and four or five students go every summer and spend eight weeks uh, in Walker County on the Walker County Partnership. Uh, and they work there with the Community Foundation and various nonprofits in the area to, um, to aid in their work. Um, and of course, you know, your question, um, all of those projects come up against uh, entrenched inequalities, um, certainly racial hierarchies that persist. Um, and, and so each encounters them in their own way and, and figures a way to move forward the project. Um, and we've seen some really exciting work come out of that. Uh, one of my advisees has been involved in working with a um, local uh, college, um, historically black institution. Uh, actually, it's a, um, uh, a, a preparatory school for black youth, I think. Um, and uh, working on um, an environmental project, which is a uh, rails to trails kind of path, uh, just pulling together the community and working with different people. Um, and so, you know, they've, they've um, each of these projects has found ways to work within those contexts to bring people together and, and, and do some rather amazing things. Well, what's got your attention now? You've you've done so much environmental justice work. What's what's on the horizon for you? There's there's so much to do. Well, 
So my current project, uh, which is, you know, is, is sort of a challenge to get one's arms around, but is to um, look at the history of environmental activism in the U.S. South and its global connections. And so uh, what I'm trying to understand there is the, what I guess the South as a place where local, where global processes take place. And Certainly it was true with the Monsanto story because these chemicals that, that was the, for a long time, that was the only place they were made, but they were transported all over the world uh, and generated, um, once people knew the consequences of generated activism all over the world. Um, one of the books I'm reading this summer um, in preparation for all of that is um, an intriguing book called Paolo's Diaspora. Uh, and it's um, by Kita Swan, and the subhead is Black Internationalism and Environmental Justice. Um, and this um, is an activist that I think most U.S. environmentalists have probably not heard of. And um, the, um, uh, he was born Roosevelt Nelson Brown in Bermuda in 1932 uh, and um, was given the name. He had family traced roots not only to the Caribbean, but also to Liberia, and was given the, the name in Liberia of Paolo Camara Cafego, and became a global environmental justice activist working in Oceania, so the islands, Pacific islands, uh, working in the Caribbean and in Africa, as well as his home country in Bermuda. And so, you know, this is uh, extraordinary scholarship to pull all of this together. And we see the threads of uh, Black nationalism and Black internationalism, uh, which are sort of understudied threads in the um, U.S. environmental movement. But there are other examples in the South that one could draw on. So these are the kinds of accounts that I'm trying to, um, to understand and um, bring into our a bigger understanding. When you, the national stories about the U.S. environmental movement, and this is really true of my own book, uh, Rethinking the Environmental Movement, which came out in 2019, which is when you're trying to tell the national story, there are only so many stories you can tell about any particular region. And most of the accounts of the U.S. environmental movement give short shrift to the environmentalism that has gone on in the South. And so that's sort of the other mission of this book, which is to, to tell more of those stories. People know about Cancer Alley and they know about PCB contamination in Warren County, North Carolina, which sort of was a, had a major impetus in the modern environmental justice movement. But um, people don't remember that roughly five of the eight demands of the Montgomery bus boycott of the Montgomery Improvement Association uh, in 1955, uh, when they launched the year-long bus boycott that eventually desegregated the buses there, um, were environmental. They were about access to parks and paving roads and things that um, we would now certainly class as environmentalism. And so, I'm trying to pull all that together and, um, you know, it's a big project. Well, before we go to our very last question, um, is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to share or that you wish we had asked or a story you want to tell us? 
advice? I don't know, Tina, can you think of more? Yeah, there's just so much. There's so much. Incredible work. Um, oh, thank you. Both in and outside the classroom, which uh, I hope our listeners are, are, are getting the feel for what that connection can be. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it, I asked me a question about assignments earlier. And one of the things that I started doing when the pandemic launched uh, was podcasts. So like this one, it's become a, a very popular vehicle. And um, so it, we can't do in-person class presentations. So students are making podcasts. Well, I, even though we're back in the classroom this year, I've continued the, pro the project because um, students seem to like it and uh, the results have been great. And it's one of the places where this critical pedagogy of place work really comes through. Um, I teach a course called Urban Spaces, uh, which is about um, the ecology and social ecology of cities. Um, and we do what's termed reading the landscape, you know, so looking at the physical terrain and its history um, to understand the history of social relationships and the political economy. Um, and so for this year, we read uh, Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, which focuses on um, the U.S. government, uh, but really at all levels, but the, particularly the federal government from the New Deal forward, uh, its role in um, establishing and maintaining uh, segregation, particularly in housing. Um, and so the podcasts that came out of that were quite extraordinary. People, students uh, prepared podcasts on the various ways that uh, segregation is perpetuated today. Um, you know, inequalities reinforced, for example, by some counties around Atlanta that refused to accept the MARTA rail line. So we had a, one really good podcast on that. Um, another person wrote about the um, um, several antebellum homes in Tuscaloosa and how the perpetuation of plantation nostalgia uh, kind of undergirds this kind of ongoing um, uh, narrative of the lost cause and, and, uh, and perpetuates uh, segregation. Uh, we had several people um, talking about New Orleans and uh, the Gulf Coast in the aftermath of Katrina. And so that's another way to kind of um, bring together the uh, understanding. And I've tried much more in recent years uh, to focus people, um, particularly in the policy course, on solutions. Okay, so here's the situation that we see, and what are people locally proposing that we do about it, or what do you think um, ought to be done about it? Uh, and that's uh, produced some uh, important work too, I think, because a lot of students are thinking about, um, they might go into urban planning, uh, they might go into um, uh, environmental management and think about, you know, how do they might want to work for an environmental organization and how can they um, translate those skills that they're gaining in college to um, a way to be meaningfully involved uh, when they graduate. Well, you've been walking through in your whole career a, a lot of toxic landscapes. Uh, what gives you hope? in the current moment? Oh, the people I've met along the way. I mean, here you have, you know, the people in Aniston 
the, the phones at Community Against Pollution were about to be cut off the day the $600 million settlement was being announced, but they are fighting on, uh, you know, to make this happen. Um, and they, you know, took on two of the most powerful forces in U.S. society, a, a global multinational corporation and the U.S. Army. And and so, you know, how how can you not be hopeful when when you see that happening? Uh, it doesn't mean it's not daunting. Um, and um, and there are days when it's uh, you you see all these uh, court decisions, failures of Congress to act, um, the hobbling of the executive branch. Um, it's it's you know it is no doubt daunting, but um, but if you just look to the folks who have done that work, um, um, Faye Bush at the Newtown Florist Club, Sheila Washington scaring that museum up out of nothing, uh, convincing the United Methodist Church to give her the church in which to house it. You know, I mean, it's just um, people with fortitude uh, that keep reminding me um, of, of what's possible. I have grandchildren who are coming to visit a couple of days, and one of my favorite videos from them is uh, them traipsing around my living room at age three and four and a half saying, anything is possible, anything is possible. <laughs> so that's mm -hmm. a personal note. <laughs> this is amazing. I was, it reminds me, I, I've already mentioned many times, listeners of this podcast know that I'm from East Tennessee, and um, going going back to see my parents and brother in the summers and seeing how people um there have mobilized against highway and interstate extensions through the great smoky mountains mm -hmm. um seeing how you know some family in wisconsin involved in um pushing concentrated animal feeding operations out of their towns that are gonna dump all these toxic chemicals in the Great Lakes, like the the on the ground mobilizing is really where it's at. And I think um, the other day I was talking to a friend who is moving from a Northeastern city to teach at a university in the South. And she was very worried because she'd never been in the South. And it's like, no, the organizing is where it's at. Um, being able to go into these small places and make surprising coalitions and hear from people and engage um, that can really radicalize um, a person, a student, a teacher, whoever. Um, so thank you. Um, thank you for your work, um, you. Ellen, and for talking to us. Um, I It's my role now. Actually, no, I, before I go into the last question, I want to say, can we find your students' podcasts anywhere? Absolutely. No, I see I your face. Not sought the permission to make them publicly available. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you could uh, a resource that you could find um, that would be uh, similar to two of them. I actually I can think mm -hmm. um, that um, some that arises out, out of the University of Alabama. Um, for about 10 years, there was a project in Alabama called Documenting Justice. Mm. It was a program for, I don't know, 12 to 15 students who were not in the film program, but who wanted to learn to make documentary film. And they um, made an extraordinary 
collection of 15 minute, 12 to 15 minute films of um, various, um, it's, it's eclectic. Uh, many of them are social justice campaigns. Some of them are, are just uh, human interest stories about Alabama, but that would be a really um, useful resource. Uh, the other thing is the Southern Environmental Law Center has done these wonderful documentaries. I think they call them Southern Exposure, uh, even though that was another, the name of another magazine altogether different. But um, those films I think are, are useful. Uh, these of course are audio podcasts um, and they're done as part of a class. They exist behind a, a firewall. Yeah. All right, really our last question. Um, what are we collectively, Ellen or Tina, I'll let you all fight over who to go first. Um, what are we reading, listening to, watching, indulging in um, this, this summer or right now that you would like to recommend to a listener? Ellen, why don't you go first? All right. Well, I told you about Paolo's Diaspora, which I would recommend to people. Um, it's a, a really um, intriguing account that kind of breaks open some of our notions about um, who is an environmentalist. Um, but um, the other things I'm reading, I'm, I'm getting ready to go to the Roosevelt Center for American Studies in the Netherlands this fall. Uh, for a research fellowship. And so I'm reading all about the Roosevelts. So I'm reading Doug, Douglas Brinkley's books about Theodore and Franklin, um, but I'm mostly concentrating on Eleanor, books by and about Eleanor, Blanche Wiesen Cook's, um, I haven't made it all the way through the three volumes of her biography of Eleanor, but um, uh, I just finished uh, Greg Mittman's Empire of Rubber, uh, which is about the history of U.S. imperialism and the Firestone Company in Liberia, uh, and uh, has a link actually to the um, the um, uh, history of Paolo Camarafego because that's where his family was from and where he went back to. Uh, and then for um, a little bit lighter, uh, but still nonfiction, um, I just uh, finished Casey. Sep, I guess is how you say her name. Uh, nonfiction, true crime drama, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, which I would heartily recommend. Tina? Right. Um, well, I finally got around to reading some uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, The Ministry of the Future, which is science fiction. And, uh, but it's about global warming. So it's, um, it, it is a really uh, kind of wake up call kind of book. So not light at all, but um, uh, I like science fiction and I haven't found anything that really struck me as much as this book in a long time. All right, Lucia. Um, free Brittany Griner. I'm watching the WNBA, that's what I say every time. Um, let's see, about half an hour before this podcast was recorded, I turned in final copy edits for my book. Um, 
So, but you know what, as much as my, I hope my editor isn't listening to this because I was late turning it in, but you know, the like copy editing process for me when it was, when I didn't have COVID, which I also had last week, um, was like this occasion to go down all these rabbit holes of like books I wanted to revisit just to make sure I had the quote right or like oh yeah when I wrote that line I was thinking of this poem that I read once let me go find the poem just so that I can like feel what I felt again and um one of the one of the books that I went back to um while I was reading uh, or while I was copy editing just because I love the way that this um, this writer writes essays um, is um, a book called they can't kill us and until they kill us kill uh, they can't kill us until they kill us by Hanif Abdurraqib um, it's a book of essays um, he's a music writer who writes a lot about um, sort of popular music and um, black experiences in the United States um, and it's he writes about depression, he writes about sort of political despair and kind of micro moments of joy um, and belonging um, in the concept in the context of kind of experiencing music and arts. Um, anyway, he has another collection of essays that came up more, out more recently that I haven't read yet, but I was very happy to kind of spend some of the the downtime or let the, the the less active time reading and trying to have like a really beautiful writer's words and literary form in my head as I kind of went back to my own pages. Well, thank you, Ellen Spears, for being with us on Nothing Never Happens. And thank you for your good work. Well, thank you. Uh, it's been great to be in conversation with you. Pedagogy Podcast and our conversation with Dr. Ellen Spears of the New College at the University of Alabama. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our summer awesome intern is Nusrat Sarwar. The closing music is by Acrasis. It's from their album, God is My Autopilot, and the song is Liver. It's available on bandcamp.com. Max Bowen plays raps and guitar, and Mark McKee does beats and trumpet for a crisis. After nearly five years of running the Radical Pedagogy podcast as a mostly self-funded operation, 
we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost for maintaining our website and streaming services, as well as the pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. Look for us on Patreon.com. Thank you for listening. Cryptic mismatch, now my brain's all ruddy Stain my undies, jerking off amusedly Hopefully my muse can't see Cause I'm trying to make it on the music scene Lose this Cinderella type sick sense that the shoe fits Barefoot type vulnerability, only broken beard bottles Can damage open wounds, my means of transport So I keep vodka in my Jansport as a first and last resort Drunk driving crashed, the hope pin prototype Pandora's bottle opened up, ain't a twist off Hope persists at artistic distance As long as I'm guzzling shit that makes me restless Contemplating going riskless Suicide is a cosmetic fetish Prosthetic blemish David Cronenberg comes to mind Head blows up like scanners My mom bought me a planner So I can be unemployed on time